Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is photographer Andrew Marinkovich. Working professionally to communicate client and personal stories for more than 17 years has allowed Andrew Marinkovich to grow, create and travel better to understand himself and the world around us. Driven by curiosity, the camera helps him share what he learns. After a three-year stay in Tanzania with his wife and family, Andrew returned to America in 2018. Current work includes being Director of Photography for the initiative called Nebraska Loves Public Schools. Although modern storytelling often requires a level of digital knowledge, the more electronics Andrew interacts with, the more he realizes the true essence in stories are the relationships and connections that happen beyond the screens. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. How did you become a photographer? I have to go way back. I grew up, uh, my early years were on a farm uh, in northeastern Nebraska. And as anyone from a farm community will be familiar with, uh, I was a part of 4-H. Back in the film days, early 90s, I did a small 4-H project uh, because I think my mom said, hey, this would be great if you maybe use that camera that we have laying around the house that doesn't get used often enough. And I did a project at the county level. I got a blue ribbon on, I think, five photos that uh, were probably pretty basic as I look back. I don't think my mom saved that project, but I do remember having a blue ribbon at the county fair. And I thought, wow, this is easy. This is anybody can do this. And then fast forward to college. I was lucky enough to get into the photography course at Nebraska Wesleyan University and had a wonderful instructor down there that kept me engaged and just kind of, I was a business major. So to have this other artistic side to um, as a good liberal arts education should do, make you think about some other things. I, as a sophomore, luckily got into this class, uh, film days, they had, uh, had us in a dark room and I, it was something that, um, it was time consuming, but I enjoyed the process. You know, you get the science of it, you get the artistic side of it. And then you also, uh, thankfully because of our teacher had the chance to talk through the emotions that we were capturing, maybe even subconsciously. So there was a great appeal. I like that part of the narrative here is about the emotional connections. Mm. Why don't we jump back a little bit then and unpack a, a little more your upbringing. So tell us about your childhood and where you were born and, and what your upbringing was like. So I started uh, life in northeastern Nebraska, uh, very close to the South Dakota border uh, on an Indian reservation, the Santee Sioux. Uh, my dad went up there to teach, and my mom uh, was a nurse, still is a nurse, but was working in the health facility on the reservation. We stayed there until I was four, going on five, uh, when my parents got divorced and my dad moved back to Omaha. My mom left for a brief time, but then went back up, eventually married a farmer, and uh, is to this day only about 15 miles from the reservation where, where we live. I don't have a ton of memories from being up on the reservation, but um, I think there's definitely a connection that I still feel some maybe some presence, especially when I'm outside up in that area. Uh, going on from there, both my parents got remarried. I've got siblings. Uh, my dad and my stepmom had two boys, uh, much younger. I felt like a third parent to them still do sometimes. Um, and then my 
mom and stepdad had two girls. So I feel like it's it's a big family, but see them in pieces and parts. And um, I, I appreciate it so much. I, I think there's you can definitely frame a divorce in different ways, but I feel very lucky with both my stepdad and my stepmom that uh, you know I feel like I gained loving people that were able to help guide me um just more hands on deck right to to kind of shape where i was going and what i was doing it's hard to see life any other way sure i think there are sometimes i think about like oh what would it have been like if my parents would have stayed together but then i think about having missed out on the not only my step parents but the extended family that i've gotten to know and then having the best of both worlds i got to go summer up on the farm uh when when i was living with my dad and vice versa when i was living with my mom i got to come down to the big city of omaha and both feel like home your major college was not photography no but you found your way into that through college Mm. so what was that transition from the experience in college of enjoying and working with and learning about photography and then leaving college and embarking on a professional career in that field? Well, I think in college, had you asked me to predict what I was going to be doing, it wouldn't have been being a photographer. And I think even our instructor at the time said, you know, there's no chance that any of you are ever going to go be successful in photography. Um, And maybe that was a testament to the work. But uh, luckily, I think I've improved a little bit since then. So I was a uh, international business and German major in college. And, you know, I explored some different avenues of business and I started taking some courses to sell life insurance. And no offense to anybody that sells life insurance, but I think that would have been soul crushing for me. And I took an entire, some, or uh, my entire senior break between first and second semester over the holiday. I studied for taking my life insurance exam and I failed it, I think, by four or five questions, which was the best fail, I think, of my life. I ended up getting a, an internship with a photographer down in Lincoln then to fulfill my internship credit for my business, one of my business courses um, that I needed to graduate. And then also I had been previously introduced to my future employer. Uh, my sophomore year, they were redoing marketing materials and being the exuberant, uh, excited future photographer, I was able to just do some side projects with the marketing department, which who knows if they ever used any of my photos, likely not. But the the marketing woman in a previous life had worked with Mike Malone of Malone and Company, and she brought him in to do their updated marketing materials. He took a picture of me. You, you feel important when you're in front of the camera. It was a little bit uncomfortable, but he came back around to update materials my senior year, and I was able to go assist, uh, be an assistant, just schlep gear for him. Um, he luckily had a position open up as an assistant. And due to a couple other things not happening, I was able to go and fall into line with work. It was a lot of on-the-job training because I, I think I came into it with minimal knowledge. And I, But it's the best way, I think, in that sort of um, – for that skill set and that craft, you really need to have hands-on experience. And you know, there's only so much you can learn in the classroom. So to get to be an assistant there and – uh, get firsthand knowledge from a great photographer. Photographers, there was there was a few in the shop at the time and uh, in the studio, and that was great. And now you've traveled nearly two decades into this career. What have you learned along the way? 
Well, I feel really lucky because I think, um, you know, the, the invention of photography really isn't that old. But if you look at I like to compare, and I think people that are in the industry now, or maybe that have been in it for a while, they might compare the invention of photography to the revolution that happened between film and digital. For me, I feel lucky that I was able to discover photography when it was still happening in the darkroom, and you had to use the chemicals, and I learned to develop the film and process and do my own printing. And I think that gives you an appreciation for what digital has brought to the table and opens up sometimes even a paralyzing amount of options for you to deal with. Because whereas before you had to make the decisions before you loaded the camera or before you made the print, and there was definitely artistry to that, right? But now this is just, you know, exponentially opened up between Adobe products and you know, you can go down the line with what Apple's done for the industry and then the cameras and they, partly because the companies want you to reinvest, but they come out with a new camera, you know, every two years that is got a lot of new bells and whistles that they make you think you need. And you're not, you know, maybe back in the beginning, you could buy your whatever, let's call it a Hasselblad. And as long as you didn't drop it in a lake or you know, ruin something mechanically, you could use that for quite a while during your career. And now I think of how many cameras I've owned since starting uh, professionally uh, in 2002. And it's not because they went bad, but the technology becomes obsolete. And especially when you're working commercially, it helps if you can promote yourself with, to, to having the best in the, the latest gear. Um, Coming in, um, learning learning film in college, and then I couldn't have timed it any better when I got in with the commercial studio of Malone & Company. They were transitioning from film to digital, had just gotten some of their first digital cameras that they were putting into use. And those digital cameras were starting to rival what film would do. Because I think from an agency perspective, when they worked with clients, there was a lot of clients that said, hey, we know film change is tough. I'm not ready for this digital yet because maybe I don't have the computers to process it or I'm just not sure. It, it may be just as good, if not better, but prove it to me. So it was going through those steps. And for me, that was cool to be part of that ride. Also that I didn't have to tackle that alone. I was coming into it with people that there was not only knowledge, but dollars behind being able to back that up. Right. So that, that was great. Still commercially, then getting out, I remember we would, uh, let's say we were on a college shoot, higher ed shoot, and you'd shoot a Polaroid to see if your lighting was right. But, but you know, that took, if you did a color Polaroid, that was 90 seconds to let it develop. And that seems like forever when you're sitting with somebody, you know, waiting for some action to unfold. And with digital, being able to, you know, see in a matter of seconds and having that immediate gratification, uh, there's definitely pros and cons to it. I, I think you're more likely to maybe get the shots or a candid moment with digital now because you can shoot more, but that's also a blessing and a curse. You did have to be, I think, a little bit more thoughtful. And it's hard when you're caught up in the moment of something happening. It's so easy to hold that trigger finger down and just keep firing frames, right? Before, when you were shooting film, you had 36 exposures and you had to not only go get that processed, but 
that took time and then looking through that on a light box it was just it was more cumbersome to make that happen so you were a little bit more careful in how you frame things up that said our studio manager patty uh who is mike's wife i think early on when i had gotten out and started taking on some of my own clients said Andrew, I would have fired you had you been shooting film because we wouldn't make any money because you fire too many frames off. <laughs> and you can do that in digital, right? Where it's, you know, you're, yeah, sure, you got to store it if you're going to keep everything. But if, you know, to equate that, I remember one college shoot, higher ed shoot that I had done and came back and we did the math on like how many rolls of film that would have taken and we would not have made any money on the job. For me, it's interesting coming from that business background to see the marketing, to see the business side of it. And there, I, I love the artistic side of it, but if you're not making money, you can't keep the lights on. So let's continue that. Talk to me about how one can be successful in the business of image capture and photography when it feels in many ways as if image capture has been democratized, as it were, mm. and potentially cheapened, and the quality may be lessened. But now anybody with a smart device can ostensibly use technology to do this for themselves. So it seems to me that the business, as you've already alluded to, has changed pretty dramatically. So talk a bit more about the business of doing this craft. Sure. I think this is challenging because photography and even just like trying to get into the class in college, everybody wanted to do it. So it's sexy. It's something that I think a lot of people aspire to. The hard part is the actual work of it. And I saw people fail even in the college class just because they thought in theory they liked the idea of it, but then they didn't want to do the work. But now you've got, I mean, the smartphone in your pocket probably has a better capture on it than the first DSLR that I had. It's probably got a higher resolution and just the sensor on it is probably better, right? My wife is a great photographer, and if she took more time to figure out my camera, she might put me out of a job. Uh, we went, and I'm going to jump ahead from our time in Africa. We had the chance to visit Rwanda and do a gorilla trek, which was amazing. And we came away with photos, and I'm looking through. I took two cameras, and I said, you know, we're going to get, because we didn't have a lot of time with the gorillas. I gave her a camera. I had a camera. I'm comparing when I got back to the hotel that night, who got the better shot of these gorillas? my wife. And I say, ah, yeah, but I set it up for you. So you had the exposure right and everything. It's my favorite shot of that trip. She framed it beautifully. There's also a t stock has become really popular. So you with a smartphone, you might catch a moment that somebody, maybe you can't make a billboard out of it, but you can use it on a website and it's a beautiful shot. So now as a professional photographer, you're competing with everybody that has a smartphone and access to the internet. So yeah, it is tough, both from a still and video standpoint. I think looking at what I was able to do when I was at the commercial studio and you know, thankfully, we had a studio manager, Patty, that did a lot of our billing and she managed a lot of the business side of it. Now, it was cool to see that, but I, it was so appreciative that I didn't have to go chase down people to pay bills. Once I left and we moved to Africa, when we got to Tanzania, that was a whole nother chapter of setting up a business internationally, which um, I think I definitely have some gray hairs working through that. But for me to not 
for me to have to do every step of it really made me appreciate what Patty was doing on a daily basis because I had to go track down clients that hadn't paid. I had a client stiff me for thousands of dollars over there, which was partly my fault because I didn't do some front end. Uh, but even legally, had I had I had the right paperwork in order, um, turns out this guy was pretty shady, and I did all the work and was really happy with the product, and then never got paid. You get stuck wearing a lot of hats when you're not only the creator, the doing the pre-production, but then having to follow up and do the billing. I get how artists that just want to create get turned off or decide to go do something else because it is tough to, to run the business side of it. And I appreciate so much more now having to have done all of it myself. director of photography with Nebraska Loves Public Schools. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about what that is and the nature of your work to support that campaign. I feel lucky. I was able to be a part of Nebraska Loves Public Schools since its inception. And uh, Sally Nelson Barrett is uh, our chief creative over there. She runs the show and also um, was a ba the brainchild behind this project coming to life. She came in and hired Malone and company when I was working at the studio. And it is, boy, going back to 2010 when it started. So it's in its eighth year now, um, or just wrapping up its eighth year. I, I feel lucky I was there in the beginning and got to grow as we created these short documentaries about things happening in public schools across the, across the state. We were highlighting um, feel-good stories to share to, to show how strong Nebraska public schools are. And I think one of the things you can lose sight on, either in a public school or have kids that are going to school, you don't necessarily have a sounding board to figure out what schools are like in other states. And sure, you can hear things on the news. But um, when you compare, Nebraska really has a high level. And I'm proud to be a product of Nebraska public schools. Omaha Vikings, probably the best in Omaha, right? Yeah. I feel I feel lucky that I had a great experience in my time in public schools here and I think to be able to not only create future goodwill but to pay respects to the teachers and fellow classmates and current students um you know it's amazing to me I get goosebumps just talking about it because I think it is cool that we're able to we're controlling the story and when you can say, hey, look at these good things that are going on here, you may hear a couple negative things in the news. But when 
when we can, you're always going to have that yin and the yang, I guess. But when there's nobody telling the good side of it, then that that negative becomes the the main dialogue, and you don't have balance. So, what has been amazing is as this project has grown. Um, with Sally's vision, we've gotten into some issue-based topics as well. We've gotten into poverty. We've gotten into um, homelessness. We've gotten into uh, immigrants. And right now we're working on mental health. That has been huge, both at a national level. Um, but then what you see in the schools is a microcosm of what's happening outside of the schools. You can't keep all those other things out. And sure, you want it to be about learning, but when somebody's suffering, you, you can see it if it's a physical ailment, right? And we have plenty of ways to um, try to help people heal physically, but mentally, it's it's easier to brush it aside or put it on the back burner. Um, but a lot of times, it can be more important even than some of the physical ailments. And um, I think just showing that th- there are supports out there, but what we're trying to demonstrate and tell is that we could probably use a few more. How are you, and perhaps differently than someone else, capturing and telling those stories creatively through the medium of photography and, and video? So what, what's been great about this uh, project with Nebraska Less Public Schools is the campaign has included video to tell the stories, but also stills um, to uh, help hit all the social channels. And both are used effectively you know, in the appropriate channels. The the video is strong because I, I feel like we can get a little bit deeper into what's happening. And there are a lot of people that haven't entered a school door maybe since they graduated. For them to be able to have a view of that from their couch, what better better way to immerse than through the video, right? Um, so what we're doing right now, we are working on documentary style with this um, mental health piece. And we're getting ready just in January to launch our first of five episodes with that and to be a little bit more a fly on the wall as we are trying to capture some of this stuff there's there's challenges to that and you don't always get the shot uh, exactly framed up the way you want it but I think we're capturing an authentic story that would help someone that maybe hasn't been in a school see what people are going through and you know it's we're limited to what we see in a day and we can't be everywhere at once. Um, but I think we've been able to tell an authentic story with what we have captured. So let me borrow that then as a segue into for you, some of the most compelling stories that you've worked on, especially I guess for your international travels, what are some of these campaigns and experiences that really stick out in in your mind? Over 17 years, there's been a lot of exposure to different things. And I think um, one of the things that keeps you going in this is having curiosity. And if you don't have that, um, you don't ask the right questions, whether it's photography or video, stills or, or emotion. And if you don't ask the right questions, you don't necessarily get the right story then to share with others. You know, when I was doing work commercially in the U.S., there was so much interesting happening here that I think 
you know, I thought about, oh man, what if we'd, we'd get out and we'd uh, be interacting with CEOs and doing headshots for them. And I thought, man, if I would have gotten in with that company, I probably would never have gotten FaceTime with this person. Or you get in and, um, uh, I remember we got into some construction sites and, you know, I just thought, when would I ever have gotten access as the normal, you know, guy on the street walking by here? Nobody would let me in to see this kind of thing. And it gave me, it humbles me a little bit and also gives me a huge appreciation for this medium getting me into places that I would have never gotten to experience um, or now have these stories to tell. It definitely gets you through the door in places here. When we were in Tanzania, then it was huge because uh, when we, I, I really enjoy traveling and I got that bug in college when I did a, a study abroad in Germany. Once you catch that, anybody else that's done travel, I think hopefully if you're curious, you want to continue to do that, not only because you learn about where you're going, but it also helps you learn tremendously about yourself, right? So once we got into Tanzania, getting a work permit was, was tough because as an entrepreneur and like a one-man shop, that model isn't really set up over there. So this was... Uh, I went back to my international business class in college and I thought, oh my God, we never had a case study like this. The, the, to the extent that the, the hoops that I had to jump through, like, mind-blowing. And it took me a year from start to actually receiving my work permit and residency permit. And uh, believe me, I used every bit of that two years of eligibility, which just expired this November. So... And in, in, in other places that I travel, I think I, rarely am I without the camera, which um, can be good and bad. But I like to try to – those are the memories, right, as I look back and um, maybe more on digital files and actual prints, uh, unfortunately. But um, as you go through those images, it does help me recall, uh, you know, some of the details of those situations. When I travel, at least I like to have authentic experiences. And I feel like as a tourist, you don't always, you know, you're, you're brushing the surface a little bit. Now, in Tanzania, we had a little bit more time there. So I was able to go a little bit deeper. And the medium, I think, allowed me access that I would have never gotten uh, w without having that camera or that skill set. The other thing that was great, having, having kids... First of all, having kids growing up in Tanzania was amazing. The outside time, um, less exposure to advertising and media and screens. And um, the school that they were at was amazing. It was 100 kids. It was a British curriculum. The kids seemed to just maintain their innocence a little bit longer um, because they didn't have some of these other exposures, right? But the school became a great groundwork for me to access other parents that were you know, they were heads of NGOs or had business connections that allowed me to get in and say, oh, wow, hey, have you ever thought about doing some video or still work? And um, luckily that manifested into some jobs, which got me, again, you know, it was kind of that ripple effect that I did something for one person and then that was its own customer evangelism kind of happened. There was already people there that were doing safari work and taking pictures in lodges and that wasn't necessarily what I was trying to go after because I didn't want to ruffle those feathers and some of those were also parents at school. I missed from the studio community here having that creative brotherhood, if you will, uh, be it male or female, just having that camaraderie um, and it didn't exist so much over there but then people saw me come in and initially I didn't have my work 
permit, so I wasn't a rival to anybody. So I'm putting feelers out and like, hey, do you guys just want to get together and talk? And I'm just looking for people to meet up with and see what's going on and what's happening. And it didn't happen over there, at least not very often. So I think people felt open that they could talk to me because I wasn't encroaching on their work. But I had one gal, um, amazing photographer. She was a, a journalist, was um, in war zones in the 90s, um, late 90s, mid to late. And um, uh, just great storyteller, great eye. She was mostly stills. I feel happy to say that I got her into video, which also may have uh, made her life 10 times harder. But she's such a great storyteller that it, there was no way to keep her out of it. I got in to see things that, going back to your original question, I got in to see things that the normal tourist wouldn't have gotten to experience. And when um, you are on the slopes of Kilimanjaro and the clouds open up and you're there on a project and all the elements come together and the farmer is out in his coffee field, uh, or I guess in one scenario he's in front of his corn and he's meeting with one of the guys that is a liaison from your company and you're like don't move this is the perfect shot and Kilimanjaro's right behind and um I, I never was great with Swahili as a language in Tanzania but when I had when I was working with those companies that had uh translators or um liaisons that could help it, it made it that much more comfortable because if I just went out first of all I would have gotten lost on the road even getting to this location right so we got to spots where waterfalls going in the background that you would have never ran across these things or just the people that knew the history of the area and were able to communicate those things uh, through the translators. Even the rough stories were just amazing and I wish I could have captured the entire experience. From, from the coffee fields, I got a job uh, photographing down in the Tanzanite mines. Tanzanite is a rare gem that's only found in Tanzania. They have a huge mine very close to the Kilimanjaro airport. And this female photographer, Eliza is her name, um, Eliza didn't have capacity. Also, she's claustrophobic. So she said, hey, if you want this job, I got somebody looking for it. And I'm like, yeah, what, uh, what, what are we doing? They had me go down in the deepest gem mine in the world, 600 meters underground. We hit near the bottom. And um, looking back, one of the most probably terrifying experiences that I had over there didn't feel so much when I was down there. But if you can imagine like the hot yoga, imagine that. And I've never done it, but I think it's um, very humid, probably like Omaha summer. Um, that with no air movement, 600 meters underground with flecks of graphite, like snowing, probably health hazard, which we did not have the proper 
masks on, but no OSHA necessarily there to check up on that one. Um, but to be down the physical workout and there was probably, I don't know, three or four people helping me carry gear down there. We were down there for three hours and we never did get any extraction shots, but to actually see the mining as they were looking for these areas. I mean, first of all, to get clearance to get into the area is impossible unless you're working for the, the, uh, corporation, the gem corporation. And then, the woman that hired me was out of New Zealand and she's some gemologist that used to work there, but she was also claustrophobic. So she had never been down into the mine. So she was excited about seeing the images because she, even though she had worked there for two years, she had never been into it. And you're working in complete darkness. I had a couple LED on LED lights on power packs. And luckily the cameras have gotten to a good spot where you can bump up the ISO that allows you to shoot in lower light. And I'm getting geeky and this is like inside baseball, but um, this is, I get excited about, you know, the technology has gotten to a point that you can capture things that the naked eye can't even see. Right. I guess that's the, uh, and I get excited about, you know, pushing those limitations. And you think about that going in and I'm trying to play out every scenario of like, okay, what could this be like, but never actually having experienced what it's like being four to 600 meters underground. Um, and my kids, they're hilarious because they said, did you see lots of ants? And was there lots of creepy crawly things down there? And it's granite and, you know, different, I, I guess, I'm not sure if it was granite. It was stone. It was really hard stone. There wasn't ants boring through at that depth of the earth, right? And you got guys using huge jackhammers, just sweating. And I remember coming back up, never have I felt so appreciative of air and we were on this incline um, like a lift that took us the first 400 meters down and you can't see light as you start to come up it and all of a sudden the small I don't know almost like birth I'm imagining you see this small pinhole of light and you can feel some of the heat start to dissipate and suddenly this rush of cool air hits you and you take your first like huge breath coming back up and it gives me goosebumps thinking about it again. And then all of a sudden the light is just blinding. And, um, I have the, uh, my 5d DSLR camera sitting in my lap recording on this completely, you know, unstable lift that it's the worst shakiest footage, but I like going back and looking at that because it just, I, I think it helps me remember how precious breath is and uh, to come back up into the air and the light and thinking about, wow, that was a great experience. And you get out. I had never, we had to put on these special suits, um, just a cotton um, a jumpsuit with socks and big wellies, big, big rubber boots. I had probably an inch of my own sweat in the boot when I came out and to wring out my socks. And you think about I, that, not the best weight loss program, but uh, amazing what it made me appreciate what these Tanzanians, they did this every day at the detriment of their own health. Um, why? Because it was the only job they could get. And um, later talking to the husband of uh, that photographer friend, Eliza, he said, I can't believe you went down there. Do you know how dangerous that is? You were in the corporate area, but there are three other blocks that local Tanzanians can go into. And I've heard of gunfights and grenade battles happening because the Tanzanite is so precious that if somebody finds it and you've got somebody listening or watching from around what they think is a enclosed or dead shaft, um, they said they've known people to be killed down there fighting over the Tanzanite. And um, 
I may not have gone down had I known that ahead of time, but I feel very lucky to have had that experience. has mm. in terms of enabling access mm. for you into circumstances that might not otherwise have been open. Sure. And it reminds me of Andy Warhol and his use of a tape recorder. And in many ways, he used the tape recorder as an intermediary to hold at arm's length the people around him. So he would record them. He would talk to them and record them. But the, the device itself was a filter, an intermediary between him and them. And it seems then for you with a camera, it's almost as if having the camera is both an invitation to other people, maybe stirs their curiosity, but it also feels like it could on occasion be a device that holds people away from you or maybe makes them skeptical about what you're doing. So I wonder if you might speak to the nature of, of what it's like to be with the camera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you hit it spot on because I think... Um, you know, how would you feel if I was waiting outside your door and you stepped outside to grab your morning paper and I start firing pictures of you? Um, I think there's a sensitivity to, um, and I don't think I always had that sensitivity where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in a foreign place and I would love to try to capture something, but do I get the shot and risk? you know, making somebody mad because I've invaded their privacy. And I think as time has gone, I've become more and more sensitive to that. Because yes, it is important as an artist to get something that's authentic. But I think as a human being, it's even more important to make sure that you have the blessing of somebody else that is helping you to tell, create your story that you're trying to tell, right? Um, because it's also their story. And if you don't have equal buy-in from them, then, you know, our it cheapens the experience, I think, in my mind. I remember in, my wife was doing some work in Ethiopia, and I had the great privilege to go along with her. We were in a, it was a little bit of a touristy area, and I was trying to be candid. I had the camera with me, but it's it's hard not to stick out when you're maybe the only Caucasians in Ethiopia in, in a place that um, you feel lucky to go visit but uh, you're definitely not blending in. And I had a guy that I had fired a frame off of, I don't know, I think it was a landscape, but it was in his general direction. So he thought I was taking pictures of him and he just laid into me. And I remember, uh, you know, I don't know the language. And how do I say that? Hey, man, you know, I 
totally respect you. I'm not taking your picture. I'm taking a picture of the landscape over here, right behind you. I'm zoomed in. But he doesn't know. He's never looked through the camera potentially or uh, had that opportunity to know. Lenses can zoom in and out. So I wasn't getting you. But he let into me. He let me have it. And I remember being a little bit scared. Like, wow, okay, I'm. this is a privilege to to use and have this medium um so respect it and respect the people because as and this was what i loved about having these jobs in tanzania was not only did we get into spots that i was just chomping at the bit to you know have this authenticity and photograph people doing things out in the coffee field or in the tanzanite mine but we had we had an okay from um the people that were working with them and what I got so much gratification, and again, this is with the digital, was I was able to show people right away. And not always could I get them images, but I recently, um, we, we got back in January of 2018, and just uh, this September, I was able to go back and finish up a project for one of the groups that I had done some work with prior to. They do agricultural work, coffee production, educating farmers, and I had done probably three or four jobs with them prior to this one this last fall and I made a bunch of four by six prints. I probably had 20 pounds of four by six prints that I brought back. And there was just something so cool about, cause we ran into some of the people and got to, you know, just say hi to them. But I was able to give them yeah, even just a four by six print was so cool to see their reaction. Um, and that I thought about them. Right. And, um, I want to have that appreciation for the people that helped me, tell the stories and share the stories that I've been fortunate enough to create. How has your view of humanity changed? You talk in your bio about you realize the true essence in stories are the relationships and connections beyond the screen. But the medium, the methodology has been through the lens. So how has your view of humanity changed? Um, 
you know, I think if you watch the news, uh, oftentimes uh, I walk away with a pit or a sick feeling in my stomach when I hear what's going on, um, at least from what's advertised and what makes headlines, uh, whether it be Tanzania or getting into local Nebraska schools. I was just at Central this last week and was doing some scouting for a story coming up next year on uh, IB, um, International Baccalaureate. Being with these juniors at Central gave me hope for the future. Intelligent kids smarter than me that are having real conversations about, uh, you know, not only thoughtful, but problem solving to things that their generation is going to have to tackle. And when you get out and see the realities of what's happening, it gives me more hope. And I think in Tanzania, um, you hear, you hear our president making uh, claims of uh, whole countries as in specific reference to Africa. And I remember we were leaving around that time and hearing uh, friends that we associated with normally or on a regular basis in, in Tanzania saying, you know, where does your president get off saying these kind of things? Um, I would love for you know, some of the people that make claims like that to go visit the country and go meet somebody that is struggling to make ends meet or somebody that has pulled themselves up and done wonderful things because the opportunities are there. And uh, it may look dire, it may not look great from the outside, but I remember going through our local village, you know, on a daily basis. And these are people that have nothing. And it makes me sad. Um, uh, but I also saw so many smiles and my Swahili was never great, but when I would go through the pleasantries of the greetings, as I had those down, you, every day you do the same, you, you got to greet everybody and you get really good at that. And just taking the time and I think acknowledging that you see somebody, right? And not that you're just driving by. And if we were driving by on the road, you still wave. And my wife likes to tease me because... People don't generally honk in Tanzania unless uh, you're telling somebody to get out of the way or, um, you know, it's not as aggressive like New York. But uh, my wife liked to tell me that I had the happy honk because I would, you know, I just want to say hi to the people coming by and the guys on the motorcycles around the kids' schools. Uh, motorcycles were another form of transportation as a, as a taxi uh, for most of the locals and um, cheaper than a car, uh, faster than a bike. And I would wave at all the motorcycle drivers and, um, you know, they would know me. And then on occasion, I had a couple times where I was riding my bike and I would get a flat tire and who was there to help me out, you know, or there was a guy at the airport who um, he was really interested in photography and he saw as I was going through that I had a bunch of photo gear and he started talking to me and this was at uh, the Kilimanjaro airport. Well, I got in a bind out at the airport in Dar and you know, let the universe do its work. Who shows up behind the counter? This guy that I spent probably 10 minutes with. And I had told him, I said, if I ever run into you again, he'd asked me to get up a piece of equipment for him. It was like a $25 reflector. And I said, if I ever run into you again, I said, because uh, he had been texting me back and forth. I had picked up a spare when I was back in the States. If I ever run into you again, 
I'd love to share this piece of equipment with you. And I, I mean, the universe at work, I ran into him within my last month over there. He helped me when I was in a bind getting on a flight and I had that reflector with me, handed it off. And he, I mean, just a smile. And, but it wasn't, you know, it felt good. He was helping me. I was helping him. And, uh, he still shares his photos with me on Instagram. And that's so cool to, to still have some of those connections. Right. Uh, although I wish I had more time in the day to stay connected to the wonderful people that we got to meet over there. It's not as often, but to follow them, and this is the power of social media. I, I, there are many negatives, I think, to it, but uh, to be able to see what some of these people are doing and still get a look, uh, be it Facebook, be it Instagram, and just have a sneak on, you know, seeing, we got to see one of our friends just recently had a baby, and those are things that we wouldn't have heard about, you know, not even 10 years ago. Those are the things that uh, it gives humanity a face. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. My guest today has been photographer Andrew Moringovich. Andrew, thanks for being on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Always do it. It's an honor to be here. I love talking with you. <laughs> I'm going to edit that out because there's, there's only so much flattery that I can allow on the show. you got to get uh, your head out of the door. That, too, that'll be right? yeah, totally right. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs> <laughs>